May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. If you're even just a casual reader of the gospel, just apparently, you know, just pick it up every now and then and read through it a little bit, you would find that Jesus has a penchant for offending people. <laughs> he says things that get them really angry. Um, they're sometimes so controversial that they're, you know, the people, the writers will say they went out to plot to kill him. He's murdered. He's executed because he says things that make people upset. It's not good politics, you know, to embarrass um, the leaders of the temple on the day of their big festival to call them hypocrites in front of other people and the like things like that. And, and so make no mistake, his his provocations, they're intentional and they have their end result. People do, in fact, want to kill him. But not all of his inflammatory statements are against the, um, you know, the elites and the, and the power brokers and the rulers. Sometimes he says very inflammatory, very kind of controversial, provocative things to his friends. Sometimes he says them to people who want to become his followers. People who are like, hey, I'm ready, I'm in. And, and he'll say something to them that, that if you would read this, you would think, this is no way to build an organization. You know, this is not how you, uh, how you make friends and influence people. Let me give you some of them. In, in, um, in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Man, again in Luke's gospel, do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? I know I tell you, but division. Matthew's gospel. Um, this student of a Bible comes to Jesus and says he wants to be his disciple. And he said, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is not the way you're supposed to do things. This is the wrong. I mean, I don't know where he went to seminary, but where I went to seminary, they would not tell you to do stuff like this. Now, I know that some of you will say, now, come on, Father, we got to. You gotta massage these verses a little bit. They're not as, they're not as hard as they seem. And fair enough. You know, maybe I plucked them a little bit out of context to let you hear them in that way. But they are hard sayings still. And even if you try some little, you know, hermeneutical uh, twist to get them to fit into a, a more palatable situation, still hard things to hear. In order to get to nature the gospel controversy this morning, I think it's important that we would see the whole text. I mean, and that's what we, don't, we don't get. We get 13 verses, a little one story out of a, out of a larger setting. But there are all these linked passages between chapters 24 and 25. And the setting goes like just Jesus is in Jerusalem just before the Passover. And all the religious zealots are there. All the pilgrims are there. Everybody is, has flooded into this town. And, and, and scholars tell us that in the first century, the city of Jerusalem was small. It was like 30,000 residents, 30,000 people lived in Jerusalem. I was there a few years ago, and it is just unbelievable how many people are there. It's elbow to elbow. Anyway, 30,000 people. But during Passover, the, 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 um, the population could grow six times. You could have somewhere around, uh, you know, 100,000 people or more in, in the city. I, I was trying to imagine what Hudson would be like. You know, we have our tidy little 22,000 people here. You know, I walk downtown or whatever. You pretty much, even on a busy day, not much happening. Could you imagine if there were suddenly 100,000 people in downtown Hudson? 
Oh my. Could you, I, I, can, I can only imagine what would be being said among uh, the populace. And so Jesus is in this town. All these people are here. And they're standing outside of this massive building, this temple. It was so grand and glorious. It was one of the, you know, the wonders of the world. Even people who were not Jewish would come to Jerusalem just to see this magnificent building. And Jesus tells his friends sitting on this hill, directly across from it, looking at this building, this thing is going to come tumbling down. It's going to come crashing down. And then the Lord is going to come and bring judgment upon the earth. Now, people heard this, and, and they um, they were obviously kind of, uh, distraught and they were um, they didn't know what to say. Um, let me tell you, uh, here, here's a little bit of the passage from this. Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came um, to point out the buildings and the temples. But he answered them, you see these things? I tell you, there will not one will be left. One stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him and tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now, in a lot of people's thinking, they see this as one question. When will this happen and how will it be the sign of your coming? But these are actually two different questions. When is this temple going to be destroyed? And when will you come with your fullness of your kingdom? Okay, and so Jesus answers these two questions sort of, um, you know, through the sequence of telling these stories. He answers the first question. He says, this generation will not pass away from the earth before this happens. This temple will be destroyed before the people you see milling around this town right now are dead. And it's true. If Jesus was saying this to his friends in 30 A.D., in 70 A.D., the Romans sacked Jerusalem and they raised that temple to the ground. There there was nothing left of it. They, They tore the walls down. They totally destroyed the city. And so a lot of people say, well, what about the second part? When will you come? This is what Jesus begins to answer. What will be the sign of your coming? And he tells three stories to this. What will be the sign that you're ready to come and establish your kingdom upon the earth fully? But that concerning that hour, no one knows, he says. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. One event happened. The temple was destroyed. The other event has not yet happened. And all the world waits for it. Well, what will be the sign? And Jesus gives us three stories. Three stories. The faithful and wicked servants, the wise and foolish bridesmaids, and the money managers. <laughs> These are the three stories, and they all have the same point. Ours is the middle one. You have to understand a little bit about weddings in ancient Israel. Um, weddings in ancient Israel would often begin with the groom going to the, uh, to the father of the bride's home. Um, I see Alex and Grace down here. I did their wedding a little while ago, a year or so ago, something like that. Two years, okay. Time flies. Um, so two years ago, I uh, did their their wedding, and um, and their you know the father of the bride is a good friend of mine. So we never had this discussion, but but in ancient Israel, you had to go and buy the bride. You had to go pay. So Alex would I don't, did Alex pay? And he had to go and he had to you know he had to divvy up some money, you know. And sometimes those discussions went long, you know. No, this is not enough or whatever. There would be bridesmaids who were waiting for the groom to come out. When the deal had been done 
and they were ready to go to the party. The wedding was about to begin. They would, they would escort the groom to the party. And Jesus tells a story. There were ten bridesmaids. Five of them apparently were raised by um, taskmasters. And five of them had really libertarian parents, you know, because five of them show up with extra oil. Supposed to be a twilight march, but you know how these things go. Could go late into the night. Five of them, eh, we'll be fine. Brought no extra oil. And you know how it went. The meeting went long and long and long. And pretty soon it's half ten, eleven, twelve. It's midnight. And they all fell asleep. And someone yells, hey, look, here he comes. It's ready to happen. And then the five foolish bridesmaids said, we're out of oil. <laughs> could, you, could you give a sister some oil? Loan a little bit over here. And what did the wise ones say? No. We don't know. Maybe this is a false alarm. We have to be careful. Go off to the store. Buy some more for yourself. And so they do. And whilst they're gone, along comes the bridegroom. His, um, his entourage is half what he expected. Such is life. They head off and they go to the party. The five foolish bridesmaids say, hey, we finally get to the store. And we get back and, and, and they're not there. So we go to the house. Knock on the door. Hey, we want to come into the party. What does the bridegroom say? Get away from here. I never knew you. All the stories kind of work in the same way. The point is simple. They should have been ready. They should have been prepared. They were not ready when their moment arrived. And they should have been. Jesus' message then to us is this. How we live our lives matters. It matters what we do with our days. Keep awake, therefore, he says, for you know neither the day nor the hour. But what does it mean to be ready? You know, how do you get ready? Because did you notice that they all fell asleep? The wise and the foolish all fell asleep. They were all snoozing when the bridegroom arrived. So apparently falling asleep wasn't the wrong the wrong action. I think being ready doesn't mean that we don't live our lives, that we don't go about doing the things that we do, that we celebrate the things that we need to celebrate and we mourn the things we need to mourn. We do our hobbies and our, you know, whatever, the things that we do to enjoy um, life. We celebrate and we grieve, work and take holidays, all that sort of stuff. But it matters what we do. It matters whether we're ready or not. And so the ethical question is, what does it mean to be ready? How can you be ready? And Jesus actually tells us in this whole long dialogue. He tells us exactly what we need to do to be ready. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he says at the end of this, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as shepherd separates goats from sheep. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because, for, a causal conjunction, you grammar scholars. (laughs) For, because, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And then when do we see you sick or in prison? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Who are the wise ones and who are the foolish ones? Who are those who are fit for the kingdom? Who are those who are awake and ready? Those who care for needy people. Those who are compassionate in their lives. Those who are, who are working to give of themselves to warm and to feed and to clothe. And if we don't do these things now, there will be no time to do them later. Um, there's a, a story I read in a, um, an article not long ago about this um, couple on a, uh, um, it was a summer evening in 2009. This young woman, a mother of two young children, she had a two-year-old and a four-year-old in her, her SUV, and she's driving through the suburban neighborhood in Milwaukee. She lost control of her car, crashed, and the car burst into flames. As things would happen, it happened right in front of um, these two guys, uh, John and Joel Raylich, and they were um, they were in one of the brothers' home, and they were both professional firefighters. And so they went outside and saw the car burning. They ran out and immediately grabbed the the mother and one of the children out, and the other child they went to grab, and the four-year-old, and he was um, he was stuck in this burning car. And so these two brothers, these two professional firefighters began to work feverishly, trading off turns. One would go in and fight until he couldn't take it anymore and he would pull out, and the other would go right in immediately after. Their training kicked in and they just worked and worked and worked. And they rescued this little boy. He was burned with 20% of his, his body burned, but he survived. He survived because two guys who were sitting at one of their house, two brothers, were doing what brothers do. You know, ribbing one another and making fun of one another and Teasing one another. Yesterday I was on a bike ride with one of my really close friends. And I was killing him because I got this new bike and it's super fast. And he says, I feel like something's dragging. And I said, I think it's all the extra weight you're bringing. You know, and, um, and he got it, you know, because this is what brothers do. And these two guys were doing the same sort of thing. When all of a sudden an event took place that called them to action. And they were ready. They knew exactly what to do. Are you ready? Am I ready? Are we doing the things that make us ready? Keep watch, therefore, says the Lord, for you do not know what hour. Be awake. Be alert. Be ready. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.